Oh, we have been looking together at the book of Esther, that Old Testament book, and uh, we're going to wrap that up uh, this morning. So I want to encourage you to find that uh, Old Testament book of Esther as we'll dive back in and just been some rich lessons that God's been teaching us uh, through this uh, book. He's just been reminding us uh, of a God who moves in mysterious ways and in sometimes seemingly the most mundane of days. We talked about the fact that surrendering to God leads to greater things, and that before I'm ready to stand up, I have to be willing to stand down in surrender and submitting to Him. We've been reminded through the examples of Mordecai and Esther, it's always, always, always the right time to do the right thing, even if that's not the easy thing. And then last week, we looked at uh, being on God's timetable and learning how to, to, to pray and to see God in it, waiting before the Lord enables me to stand up as never before. This morning as we we dive in, we want to look at one other facet of standing up, uh, and that is is standing boldly. And to kind of set the table for that, I want to take you back in history, but not as far back as, as Esther in the Persian Empire. I want to take you back to a professor, a student of theology, who was anything but a soldier. But when duty called, Joshua Chamberlain answered. He climbed the ranks to become a colonel in the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry Regiment of the Union Army. July 2nd, 1863, Chamberlain and his 300-soldier regiment were all that stood between the Confederates and certain defeat at a battle in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. At 2.30 p.m., the 15th and 47th Alabama Infantry Regiments of the Confederate Army charged, but Chamberlain and his men held their ground. Then followed a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth charge. By the last charge, only 80 Blues stood standing. Chamberlain himself was knocked down by a bullet that hit his belt buckle, but the 34-year-old schoolteacher got right back up. It was to be his date with destiny. When Sergeant Tozier informed Chamberlain that no reinforcements were coming and his men were down to one round of ammunition per soldier, Chamberlain knew he needed to act decisively. Their lookout, a young boy perched high in a tree on Little Round Top, yelled down that the Confederates were forming rank. The rational thing to do at that point with no ammunition, no reinforcements, being badly outnumbered, was to surrender. But Chamberlain wasn't wired that way. He made a defining decision that many historians feel turned the battle and turned the war, perhaps saving the Union. In full view of the enemy, Chamberlain climbed up onto the barricade of stones and gave a command to charge. His men fixed bayonets and started running at the Confederate Army, which vastly outnumbered them. They caught them off guard by executing a great right wheel. And what seemed initially like a suicide mission ended up saving the Union. Many historians believe that if Chamberlain had not charged, the rebels would have gained the high ground. And if the rebels had gained the high ground, there's a good chance that they would have won the Battle of Gettysburg. 
If the rebels had won that battle, the historical consensus is that the Confederates would have won the war. Many historians believe that one man's courage saved the day, saved the battle, perhaps saved the war, and saved the Union. And what Chamberlain's story reminds us of is what the stories of Esther and Mordecai and so many others in Scripture remind us of. That there comes a time when you and I are called to act boldly, to act boldly and leave the results to God. We act boldly, not, not in a 100% guarantee how everything's going to turn out, but we act boldly because we sense that that's what God is calling us to do in this moment, in this situation. And we act boldly and we leave the results to God. And as we come to the, the back half of the book of Esther, we find uh, Esther who has begun to act boldly. She's taken that first step. She, she entered into the king's presence after a time of, of prayer, and she wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. She knew entering uninvited into his presence could invite, invite certain death. But she came to that point after waiting in the presence of the Lord to know, if I perish, I perish. And so boldly she stepped into his presence. And boldly she began to follow him at every step of the turn to, to be the catalyst that God would use to rescue his people. The story begins to move very swiftly beginning in chapter 6 where the first five chapters kind of unfolded over the period of years. Chapter 6 and following begin to unfold many, many of the events in just a few hours and, and, and the whole section even to chapter 10 is just in a matter of a few months. And so what I want us to do is just if you'll allow me to be your tour guide, we'll just, we're just going to move very quickly through these last few chapters because that's how the story moves and then I want us to kind of think about how do we move from Esther's story uh, to our story. So if, if you'll just move with me, let's start in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we begin with a sleepless night with the king. Uh, the king hasn't been able to sleep. Now, I don't know what you do when you can't sleep, if you toss and turn or if you get up and do something or, or whatever you do, but the, the king decided to have somebody read to him the chronicles of his own kingdom. I guess, why not? You know, maybe, maybe you have your, your, somebody in your family do that for you. Just read your journal or the exploits of you or something. I don't know. Uh, but he does. And lo and behold, in God's sovereign provision, he's reading at that portion where they had just recorded where Mordecai that we looked at a few weeks ago had intervened. He had stood with conviction. He had intervened and, and, and rescued the king from an assassination attempt. And he just asked the off question, how is he rewarded? He discovers he wasn't rewarded at all. He says, we need to do something about that. And so he makes a decision to reward Mordecai. Now, Haman, the evil guy in the picture, right? he's showing up. He gets there bright and early in the morning because he's already made plans. We looked last week. He, he, is, he has posted on high this, this stake that he's going to drive through Mordecai's body and put him on display. He's going to kill him before the appointed time to kill all the Jews. And so he's showing up that day bright and early, first one in the court, so that he can, he can kind of get the king to sign off on that. What he doesn't know is that the king's going to ask him, hey, 
What, what should be done for the one the king wants to honor? And Haman, we looked at last week, full of pride, he kind of quickly thinks, hey, there's nobody the king wants to honor more than me, right? And so he begins to kind of unfold this series of things for the king to, to honor. He says, Haman, all that is good. Why don't you get Mordecai and do all of that for him? And so we have this humiliation of Haman as he's having to walk Mordecai through the streets, all dressed up and all, all with the king's regalia, talking about this is what's done for one the king wants to honor. And he, he kind of slinks back home. He had gone home before full of pride. He comes back now to home in humiliation. And his own family says, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good how this is going. He gets the call back to the banquet, the second banquet with the king and with Queen Esther. And, and Esther reveals his plot. She, she puts, puts him on notice. And so, uh, again, she's kind of acting boldly. She's boldly going to the king. She's boldly waited on his timing. She's boldly now had two consecutive banquets that the king has decided to come to. And then there comes that point, uh, and if, we, if you look in, in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, then King Ashurah said to Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? As she talked about this person who's getting ready to annihilate her and her people. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy with him right in the room, this wicked Haman. That Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And so she reveals this plot, and the king immediately flings into this wrath, and he steps out, and maybe he's making arrangements. He comes back, and what he discovers is Haman is pleading for his life before the queen, and he does so. He's kind of like got too close to the queen. He's kind of broken protocol, and he, now the king even accuses him of assaulting the queen right there. And so one of the, the folks standing there just kind of happens to mention, oh yeah, king, by the way, Haman's already erected like this big old spike thing to hang a body on. I think he intended it for Mordecai, you know, the guy you just honored and rescued. Uh, and, and I'm just saying, it's there. And he said, put Haman on it, right? And so, so the king's wrath is poured out on Haman. And as you move into chapter 8, Mordecai has this promotion. And again, we see the sovereign hand of God. God knows right where you are. He knows how to get you where he needs you to be to fulfill his purposes in his timing. And so Mordecai gets promoted. And now he has all of this opportunity, all this leverage, all of this power, all of this influence. And in the midst of that, Esther's not done leaning boldly into the situation. She petitions the king. It's one thing to get rid of Haman, but the law still stands. This unchangeable law of the Medes and the Persians continues to stand that on a given day, in a few months, about eight months from now, that they, they, the whole kingdom can just unleash on the Jewish people to annihilate, to plunder, to do whatever they want. That law is unchanged. And so she begins to, to, to cry out and to plead uh, for, uh, for her people. And there in chapter 8, uh, verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And so she makes that petition. The king, who has entrusted this power to Mordecai, he turns to Esther and Mordecai and says, do what you need to do. Do what you need to do. 
And so they can't undo the law, but they put another law beside it, this rescuing edict coming from the king with all the king's authority behind it. And it is this law can't be changed, but now there's an additional law. The Jews can absolutely defend themselves. In fact, it's not only can they defend themselves, but just want you to know that the authority and the power of the king is going to be behind them. And then, now, can we pause here for just a moment? Pause here for just a moment. Sometimes people say things like this. They'll say things like, you know, you can't really legislate morality. Have you heard that? Maybe you've even said that. Now, if you mean by that statement, you can't legislate a change in somebody's heart, I absolutely agree with you. There's no law from the outside that's going to change somebody's heart on the inside, right? But here's the other thing. Laws do impact behavior. Laws do impact behavior. And in that sense, it can set a tone. And so all of a sudden, with the change of the law, goes this change in behavior. And so as you turn into the next chapter, there is this fear of the Jews that has set up. This fear of the Jews that is set up at the very end of chapter 8. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. For the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And so, two months after the original edict of Haman that everybody had permission to plunder and kill and annihilate the Jews, comes this other law. The old law and this new one will both go into effect about eight months from now. Eight months from now, but now the Jews can defend themselves. Now the Jews have the right in fighting back to even wipe out anybody who comes against them. And they have the authority of the king behind them. All of a sudden, instead of the entire kingdom rising up against them, there's just a few pockets. Because even if you pass a law, there are going to be some who are going to behave in different ways, right? But the vast majority of the people did not attack the Jews. They were not wiped out. Those that did, they were able to defend themselves with the support of the king. And so there was this fear of the Jews that had fallen upon them. And it it all came to, to a head. The Jewish people were rescued. What few people rose up against them were defeated. And what you have instituted in light of that is a feast, a feast of the Jews uh, that's come to be known. In fact, it's still on Jewish calendars to this day uh, of Purim. Purim because it has a connection with the pur, the casting of lots along the way. Look at verse 26. As it, it just talks about that. Therefore, they call these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them. And so the Jews obligate themselves from that point forward to remember these days, to remember and celebrate the provision and the rescue of God. And then chapter 10 just ends up just three short verses. It's just a celebration of the greatness of Mordecai. The greatness of Mordecai. And the very last verse in the book just talks about uh, his position. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Asherah. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Now that's a fast moving account. I, I get it. But here's what I want you to understand. Back to the very beginning, 
when we first began to crack open this book in this study, what we said is that God's name is nowhere mentioned in this book, but God's hand is all over it. The hand of God, the activity of God is all over it. And one of the things that I, I want us to walk away from as we think about Esther, as we think about how does it speak to my life today, is just this powerful reminder in this story that even when God seems absent, He is present and He is working. Even when God seems absent, e even when you don't feel like He's listening, or He's certainly not answering your prayer the way you want Him to answer it, when you want Him to answer it, when it seems like no good deed goes unpunished, right? That you're trying to do the right thing, and it seems like uh, the wrong thing is what's getting rewarded, and the good thing is getting put down and punished. When life seems unfair, when the load seems too heavy, in those moments when you've cried out and you don't feel God, in those moments, we come back. We come back to the Word of God, and we draw strength because we are reminded from Esther and Mordecai and so many others throughout the Scripture that even when God seems absent, He seems absent to me. He's present, and He's working. And I don't know where this morning finds you, but what I know is that there are some of you today that maybe you're here because of habit. Or maybe you're here grasping for hope. But if you had somebody close enough to you that you could be gut-level honest with, you would say, I'm struggling because he seems absent. And I don't know what he's doing. And I don't know what he's up to. And I just want to encourage you today. Because even when God seems absent, he's present and he's working. And if you're not there today, I, I, I got to tell you that if you live long enough, you're probably going to get there somewhere along the way. That there are going to be those seasons of our life because we all have ebbs and flows. We all have ups and downs. We all have periods of trials and difficulties when perhaps you're going to be walking through a season of your life and God is going to seem absent. And maybe, maybe, maybe by the grace of God, you'll remember Esther. You'll remember Mordecai. You'll remember a Persian empire a long, long time ago. And you'll remember a story that even when God seems absent, he's present and he's working. But maybe you're here, okay, cool. And great story. A little odd at places in the Bible, but it's a great story. But what about today? What about my story? And so I want to spend just to the remaining moments we have this morning just reflecting a little bit from Esther's story to our story. Because I think you and I have a tremendous, tremendous advantage on Esther. And that is that we live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We have access to Scripture she didn't have access to. We have the New Testament testimony before us. We have, have years and years and years of church history. 
We have the support of a community. We have all sorts of advantages that Esther didn't have. And so I want to ask you a question that I think is in line with what we had know today on this side of the cross and what we see in Esther's story. And I hope it's a question that you'll not just wrestle with for a minute or two in this setting, but I hope it's a question, quite honestly, that you'll take with you the rest of your life. And that question goes something like this. What would it look like? What would it look like if I really, really lived like God was with me? God was for me, and that God was at work all around me. What would it look like day in and day out? What would it look like in the middle of that relational difficulty? What would it look like in the midst of that challenging situation? What would it look like in the midst of that opportunity that you think is way, way, way too big and too hard and too complicated for you? What would it look like for you and I to live every single day of our life convinced not just in our head, but in the core of our being that God was with me. He was for me. And that He is at work in me. He is at work all around me. Because isn't that exactly what the New Testament tells us? Isn't that exactly the testimony of Scripture? That you have a God who is for you. I mean, how much more clearly could He say it than coming, giving up the glories of heaven and coming on human flesh? going to the cross on my behalf and yours, resurrected from the dead, sealing us with the Holy Spirit, what would it look like? I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to share with you four thoughts. Four thoughts that by no means is the last word, but it might prompt a starting word and our starting place for you. Four thoughts. If I was really convinced in the core of my being, that God was with me and God was for me, that God was at work in me and all around me, I think I would remember. I would remember every single day that God operates and I cooperate. (laughs) That God is the one who works and I get to be a part of that. That's one of the things that, that was just riveted in the mind of those first followers of Jesus Christ, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, following the coming of the Holy Spirit, that filling at Pentecost. They became convinced that God was the one who was operating, even in a series of events that didn't seem to make sense at the time. And so they would proclaim to those in Jerusalem, this Jesus delivered up a According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was just not something out of control, but God was at work. God was operating. God operates, and I get to cooperate. Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is at work. He's not only at work in all those circumstances, but He is working in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God operates. I cooperate by His enabling grace, His enabling power. Ephesians tells us we're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. 
Well, then right after that reminder is this sense of calling. You weren't just saved just to kind of hang out, but you are his workmanship. You're his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, but not just random good works, but which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you and I become convinced at the core of our being that God is with us and God is for us and God is working within us and God is at work all around us, then, then we, would, we would begin to understand that God operates and by His grace I get to cooperate in that. We would begin to take that posture that even Jesus did when He was on the earth. He said, he said the Father is at work and I am at work. He operates and I cooperate. That, that begins to lift the load, doesn't it? So it begins to change it. I, I begin to say, I don't come and say, oh God, bless my plan. I say, God, help me to get in on your plan. Because you operate and I get to cooperate. I get to be a part of what you are uniquely doing. If I'm convinced in the core of my being, I'm going to remember every single day that God is at work. God operates, and I get to cooperate. Secondly, if I believed in the core of my being, that God was with me, and God was for me, and God was at work within me, and God was at work all around me, I am convinced that I would pray a whole lot more and worry a whole lot less, don't you? I mean, if I was really, 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 really convinced that even in those moments when God seemed absent, He is present and He's working, I would find myself worrying a whole lot less and praying a whole lot more. Philippians just reminds us of that privilege. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When it, when it gets into the core of your being, that God is with you and God is for you and God is working in you and God is working all around you, you begin to pray more and worry less. Because you understand he's not absent, he's present, and he's working. We looked last week just briefly at this incredible invitation uh, that the Hebrews reminds us of. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, if you know, if you know that God is with you and God is for you, are you not going to go into his presence more frequently? Are you not going to go into his presence and with, with that anticipation that you're not trying to wrangle something out of him? You're not trying to cut a deal. You're not trying to, to, to negotiate. You're not hoping he's in a good mood today because you know, you know he's with you. You know he is for you. You know he is at work in you and all around you, and he is inviting you to cooperate in his operation in this world. Oh, if I believe that in the core of my being, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to worry less. Thirdly, 
I think if I believe that in the core of my being, I'm going to speak more often with love and boldness. I'm going to speak more often with love and boldness. And that, that's, that's part of our calling within the body of Christ, isn't it? Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I mean, if I really understand, hey, God is with me and God is for me and and God operates and I get to cooperate and and he's at work in somebody else's life and he wants to use me and he wants to use us in each other's lives, then I'm going to be a little bolder in leaning into those conversations. I'm not going to do it rudely. I'm not going to do it arrogantly. And the motivation is a love for God and a love for others. But I'm going to lean into those more because I'm convinced Convinced that God is with me and for me. I'm convinced that God uses us in each other's lives. And our culture says, mind your own business. Our culture says, don't get involved. Do you know all the legal trouble you can get into? God says, speak. Speak with love. Speak with boldness. And Paul wrote to the Colossians, he, he asked that they would even pray for him to have opportunity and a boldness to be able to speak. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Oh, listen. The New Testament church, when they were filled with God's Spirit, when they became convinced of the core of their being that God was with them and for them and God was working in them and God was working around them, they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. And when they did it, they did it. not everybody received it well. And when they did it, they were threatened and they were jailed and some would be killed and they would eventually be scattered and all of these things. But they would go before God in prayer and they wouldn't pray honestly what I would instinctively pray. I would pray, God, protect me. God, make them stop. (laughs) God, get, get them off my back. But they prayed, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Wow. Can I tell you, you don't pray that prayer unless you're convinced to the core of your being that God is with you and that God is for you and that God is at work within you, through you, and all around you. And I just want to challenge myself, even as I challenge you this morning, if we really believe what we say we believe, if we believe that everybody is going to spend forever somewhere, if we believe that the only way, the only possible way to get reconnected to God, the only possible way to be with God now and for all eternity is through Jesus Christ, then how unloving do I have to be not to tell somebody about Jesus? How self-centered do I have to be 
to not take a chance. To lean in boldly and see what God may do. Graciously, seasoned with salt. Absolutely. But if I'm convinced, if I'm convinced of that, I'm convinced God's with me and for me and at work within me and around me. I'm going to speak more frequently with more love and with more boldness. Let me just give you one other thought. If I'm convinced in the core of my being that those things are true, I think I'm going to reject passivity and live passionately. I'm going to reject passivity and live passionately passionately. And that's what you began to see in those early followers of Jesus Christ. Now when they saw, these outsiders saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. I mean, these guys shouldn't be living like this. But they did understand. They did recognize that they had been with Jesus. You know, there there are times when we think, well, if I really believe that God is the one who operates, if I really believe that that, that God is active and God is sovereign and all these things, then then I I just kind of withdraw in passivity and kind of let it unfold. No, 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 no. No, the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is with you and for you and at work within you and at work all around you, the fact that God operates and invites you to cooperate, the fact that God has prepared good works in advance that you would walk in them, that that causes you and I to reject passivity and to live passionately, passionately for the one who loved us, passionately for the one who has restored us and redeemed us, passionately for the one who has chosen to use us, passionately for the one who is at work all around us. And we begin to act boldly. We begin to live boldly. We begin to to live a little more out loud because of who he is and what he is doing. And so we're challenged in Scripture. Whatever you do, don't half-heart it. Don't mail it in. But work heartily, passionately, as for the Lord, because he is with you and he is for you and not for men. Because you and I have a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work where? Within us. (laughs) Within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's a thought. Could it be? Could it be that my lack and your lack of guts is really a lack of faith? Could it be that my lack of courage is really a lack of conviction? That at its core, it's a lack of conviction that God is with me and God is for me, and that God is at work within me and that God is at work all around me, and that God invites me to join Him in His work. When, when, when did we start believing that Jesus died to keep us safe? That's westernization, but it's not biblical. When did we start believing that He died to make us safe? When the scripture says he died to make us dangerous, dangerous to the enemy's kingdom. 
When did we begin to believe that God's plan for our life was an insurance plan? That we would just kind of tiptoe safely to the grave instead of a daring plan. A daring plan to join him in transforming a world one life at a time. Could it be my lack of guts to speak with love and boldness, to live passionately for Christ is really at the core a lack of conviction, a lack of faith that he's with me and he's for me, he's working in me and he's working around me and that he is operating and I get to cooperate. There comes a time when you and I are called to act boldly and leave the results to God. Joshua Chamberlain continued to serve in the military. After the war, he went on to serve as the 32nd governor of Maine and the president of his alma mater, Bowden College. In 1893, 30 years after his act of heroism, he was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Grover Cleveland for holding his position on the little round top against repeated assaults and carrying the advanced position on the great round top. In his later years, Chamberlain would reflect back on the war with these words. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. Hear that. The inability to do nothing. I knew I may die, but I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. The inability to do nothing. And isn't that the standard that Jesus set? The one who gave up the glories of heaven to come to earth. The inability to do nothing. The one who walked into a temple and began to overturn tables and chase out money changers. The inability to do nothing. The one who confronted time and time again the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The inability to do nothing. The one who cast out evil demons from men. Had the inability to do nothing. The one who stopped the funeral procession to raise a boy from the dead had the inability to do nothing. The one who cried out in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane went to the cross and endured all of that the inability to do nothing. Isn't that the standard that Jesus Christ sets? Jesus was anything but passive. In fact, as we call the last week of his life, the Passion Week, right? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying passion means everybody becomes a rah-rah cheerleader. 
<laughs> if that's your personality, rah, rah, right? Go for it. But passion's not about personality. It's about purpose. It's about calling. It's about faith. It's about courage. It's about going all out and all in for the all in all. And that'll look different through the lens of different personalities. And that's awesome. Because that's exactly how God intended it to be. If I really believe to the core of my being that God is with me, that God is for me, that God is at work within me, God is at work all around me, I will reject passivity. I will live passionately. I will have the God-inspired inability to do nothing. And what that means is that there are going to be moments in my life and yours, and for some of you this week, when you are going to be called upon to act boldly and leave the results to God. Let's go to him together in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you <laughs> that you are present and you are active and that you are at work in us and all around us. And thank you, Father, that we understand in ways that perhaps Esther never could, that you are the God who is with us and you are the God who is for us. And Father, we want to live our life in light of reality. We want to live our life in light of truth. We want to live our life like you are really with us and for us, that you are really working in us and through us and all around us. And so, Father, today, as we have these moments in this setting, would you speak? Would you disturb? Would you stretch? Would you reorient? Would you refocus? And I'm just going to ask you right now just to sit before the Lord. And there's some questions and a note-taking guide.